Hello, everyone. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm executive director of the Chicago Justice Project, and we're here today to talk about sexual violence in Chicago and especially in COVID-19 and our shelter in place and what that has done to survivors. Um, many of which, I guess I should say, have, may have had to shelter in place with their abusers, something most people don't think about. Obviously, violence against women in general is grossly undercovered. Our study back in 2013, 2013 showed that. It was actually done in cooperation with uh, Rape Victims Advocate at the time that has now uh, been rebranded as Resilience. And we did it with also the Chicago Metropolitan Battered Women's Network. And also just for a little foretelling of what's coming up in the future for CJP and on this topic, we are in the midst of crunching the data. Our original Bounce Against Women in the News was one year of coverage. Our report that's coming this summer will analyze coverage from 2017, 18, and 19. And the original report that just the Tribune and Sun-Times this year we're doing this time. Over the three-year analysis will be the Tribune, Sun-Times, Channel 2, 5, 7, 9, and Fox. 32 in Chicago. So we're going to be doing just about all the mainstream media review of that coverage. So let's get to our guest. Aaron Walton is the executive director of Resilience in Chicago. And also with us is Sarah Layden, who is the director of programs and public policy. Thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. So Aaron, we're going to start with you. I know this goes over and over again, this, these, these, this, I consider them simple questions because I've read a lot on the topic, but for our viewers who don't know, can you give us some of the myths around how survivors are supposed to act, how the world, the criminal justice system expects survivors to act after they've been assaulted? Sure. Um, there are unfortunately many myths um, about sexual assault survivors that, as we know, is just not true. Uh, first of all, the act in and of itself is assumed to be perpetrated by someone who was a stranger to the survivor. And we know that more often than not, survivors know their, their uh, um, assailants. Um, other myths is that uh, sexual assault survivors um, should be reporting right away, um, that they should be um, fighters during, you know, during the act. And, um, and, and we know for certain that those things uh, may or may not happen. Um, survivors are, this is a, a trauma that impacts not just your body, but your mind. And people are impacted and respond in different ways. Um, this this um, heinous act results in people feeling confused. Um, they can, um, they have memory issues sometimes, memory loss um, temporarily. Um, fear obviously overwhelms them. Some people fight, some people flight, some people um, um, have, other, have other reactions. And so um, because we anticipate what someone should do under those circumstances, we inappropriately judge people when they act um, in a way that's not consistent with, with that line of thinking. Um, as I mentioned earlier, people feel as though you should report right away. Some people, for different reasons, 
um, choose not to do that. Either they may have had negative experiences with law enforcement and, and don't want to do that, um, or just don't think to do that in the moment out of fear and confusion and just want to, you know, be alone and, um, and hide. Um, people re respond in different ways, and we need to, as a community, understand that and, and respect people's um, ability and rights to do that. Okay, so Sarah, the Chicago Justice Project, we've talked many times in person about this. We're a data project. So we're always pushing, wanting to learn more about how valid, reliable is all this criminal justice data. So if you, from your experience, which I seem, I tend to believe now is long because I've known you for several years now in this line, how much do you think, how much of, the, of these crimes, what percentage of these crimes, if you have a feeling, that actually occur are getting reported in the Chicago Police Department's data. Because I remember when we worked on that report with Resilience years ago on the media, you know, there was a slow, slow downtick of, of assault, at least um, what are called criminal sexual assault here in Chicago. There was a slow downtick of those crimes every year. But I think national data kind of shows something different. So enlighten us, if you please. Yeah, so it's very, very hard to determine with which, with what frequency sexual assault is happening in communities because survivors may choose to access different resources. So they might go to a rape crisis center instead of going to the police. They might go to the hospital instead of going to a rape crisis center. They may only go to the police. And then as Erin just spoke about, we have survivors that may choose for a variety of reasons not to go to anybody, but to keep it, you know, to, to keep it um, something, you know, private to them for a variety of, of reasons. National um, averages estimate that three out of every four sexual assaults, so 75%, go unreported. So when I'm looking at law enforcement data, I'm typically looking at it with that in mind um, to give you, you know, an idea of kind of how this unfolds at a local level here in Chicago. Um, the Chicago police reported in um, the, the, the 2018 uniform crime report that they sent to the Illinois State Police, 1,798 incidents of rape, okay? Um, the 2019 report isn't available yet. So we have 1,798 reported rapes in 2018, right, according to Chicago police data. Resilience sees nearly 650 to 700 survivors in 17 hospitals in the city annually. That's only the survivor, those are only the reports happening in those hospitals. Uh, many of those overlap because um, hospitals are required to notify police, but certainly resilience in the city of Chicago is not serving the vast majority of people who are being sexually assaulted. We know that more sexual assault is occurring. There's two other rape crisis centers that also serve the city of Chicago um, that see you know, high rates of you know, reports to their partner hospitals, ones that aren't included in our, in our data. So I think it just, it depends on the data that you're looking at. Any data that you're looking at, know that it doesn't tell the complete picture of how much sexual assault is happening. I know when I, in, in, when I was in grad school, 
we would talk on this topic and we were, we were kind of taught at a zero, right? We looked at the National Crime Victimization Survey and I think at that point it showed like nine out of every 10 weren't recorded. I think that's ticked down a little bit now, but I've always just assumed at a zero, at least to what's occurring um, because in the also, I, I know you talked about the 1700 number, 1700 something number out of the Chicago Police Department. I, I, I wanna make it clear to our viewers, that's the output number. That's not the input number. We also looked at uh, sexual assault case processing and I don't remember the exact years, but we looked at several years of it. And we found that the city of Chicago, the Chicago Police Department had a rate of 16% of marking sexual assault allegations unfounded, right? So, you know, so you're not getting, we're not getting the input number, what survivors are walking into the police department or the hospital and reporting, we're getting just what they're categorizing at the end of the day as it outputs their system. So I just think that's important for viewers. Okay, well, I'm gonna open this up to either of you actually. I know from my work with uh, Violence Against Women Advocates, that there's always been an issue between, there's always issues between the response that would be ideal for advocates to receive and what they actually get um, when they encounter, however that may be, they're going to a hospital or calling them one where the incident happened or walking into a station. The difference between the ideal of what they would get when they're encountered by the police department and engage with them and what they actually get, I think there's a difference there. So I, for our viewers, what would be, if you had to give us a typical negative response, a negative interaction, what would a typical one be like? Not an extreme one, but the run of the, I, I hate to say this word, but the run of the mill, the average. I don't like when people focus on the extremes because you can have one bad officer or one great officer, and that doesn't, it doesn't help move the middle at all. So what is the middle in that response? And so give us that response first and then we'll talk the repercussions first. Well, I'll just chime in and say, I know you opened this up to both of us, but I specifically feel as though this is a question that Sarah can answer much more intimately as the director of, of, of not only our advocacy program, but our others and, and her long-term standing with, with the agency. So I'll just turn it over to Sarah for that response. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, sort of typical bad response or non-ideal response, mm -hmm. as you've put it, um, I'd have to at best describe it as maybe no response. Cases that get lost in the system, follow-up that doesn't seem to be done in a timely manner or if at all. Um, we get many survivors that call resilience just wanting to know where their case is at. That's indicative of a system that's not providing that information to a survivor to be informed. So I think the, the typical, you know, kind of bad response is inherently a lack of response, um, quite honestly. Okay. Let's go the Illinois term in Illinois we have a uh, the law is if you had committed a rape or the felony law is aggravated criminal sexual assault it is not termed necessarily rape which I think is a term that is much more in the common lingo when people understand what that means or have a better idea can you give us an idea for our 
our uh, listeners, what is, what is the, I guess, least violent, I don't, I hate to use these words, but what is the least violent um, criminal activity um, that would be classified as an aggravated criminal sexual assault? And then what is the most violent? What, what, what's the boundaries of that definition? So people understand because I, I've seen and I've talked to people and I've heard them talking about um, whether or not just groping a woman on the bus, I've been in bars and heard this, is not, you know, it's just something very minor. And I, I don't think people understand what the breadth of this felony law is. So if, Aaron, if you can explain it a little bit to us, that would be great. Yeah, again, I'm gonna defer, I'm gonna defer a little bit to, to Sarah on that one, thank you. Okay. Yeah, so all sex crimes in Illinois are felonies. Um, so I just want to make that very clear. There are only two specific charges that can be classified as a misdemeanor. And for lack of better description, because the law itself is very um, detailed, they tend to be your close in age offenses. So 16 year olds um, and, and 19 year olds, um, they tend to be classified the age and the eight and being close in age, one being a little over 18 and one being a little under 18 are the ones that can be charged as misdemeanors. Outside of that, they're all felonies. So it just depends on the level of a felony. Aggravated criminal sexual assault uh, means that there were aggravating factors such as bodily injury. It was committed in the course of another felony. Maybe someone was um, given a controlled substance to help facilitate the sexual assault. Um, somebody was injured, there was a firearm involved, um, the list goes on from there, but there's sort of certain aggravating factors that bump up the level of a felony that it is. Um, the most egregious felony um, as it relates to being able to be kind of charged as a class X felony um, would be um, aggravated, what is it, aggravated, is it child abuse? Now, aggravated, basically the sexual assault that occurs when a perpetrator is over 18 years of age and they, they have abused or sexually assaulted a child under the age of 13. So those kind of have the ability to get charged early on as a class X felony. You don't have to kind of repeatedly be in the court system for that. Um, the line between charging a sexual assault as aggravated versus just a criminal sexual assault, which doesn't involve those aggravating factors can get a little blurry. I think some of the areas where it gets blurry um, are around the injury, right? Like what level of injury is needed to demonstrate bodily harm, to, to create this aggravating factor. Um, and, you know, I think it kind of varies at, you know, at the prosecutor looking at the case, being able to kind of substantiate what bodily injury kind of meets that threshold of creating you know, an aggravating factor. So I, I, I think it's a difficult question and the answer that I've been trained to respond as is, it depends, uh, right? <laughs> so that's what they train you in law school is at, the answer to everything is it depends. <laughs> yeah, and um, 
Yeah, I, I, I would hope that we're moving towards more defined definitions. I get worried for everyone involved in the criminal justice system when those when those when those lines aren't very clear because it 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 it, it leads to one I think it, it it opens avenue for bias in the um in the administration of justice and that could go against the defendant or against the survivor in either mm -hmm. way and I think at times it probably does both but also it leads people to um, lose I think the system loses legitimacy in the eyes of the people that are involved if there's not bright lines about what is what and that it's just this very um we'll know it when we see it type of thing and i right. know i guess I, I think i appreciate it for free speech but i don't think that works on a sexual assault and whether or not it's aggravated um and Tracy, just so I can correct myself, the charge that's a class X felony from the onset is predatory criminal sexual assault. Okay. So adult with young child. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, I think the statute itself is incredibly detailed. Um, you know, where the issues lie sometimes on some of this stuff is what the case law says, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we see that a lot with being able to charge the inability to consent, right? The statute itself doesn't give a whole lot of information as to what qualifies as inability to consent. It's case law that defines it. And so any skilled attorney is going to be good at finding case law to support either the defense position on it or the prosecutor's position. So I think that, you know, and with many legal matters that can... Um, blur things i think particularly for law enforcement that is not in the role of a prosecuting attorney right like how do you equip law enforcement to be able to make decisions that typically take place when charging decisions are being made by pros by, by skilled prosecutors right so how do you equip them to be able to see the things that prosecutors see or feel confident in pushing forward from the onset of a case yeah, it's um, in our sexual assault task force that Sharmili, the past executive director, was part of. We tried to get the 911 center, the Chicago Police Department, the state's attorney's office, Cook County State Sheriff's, and the courts all together to sit in a room, uh, allow us, allow Loyola University's criminal justice department to, under IRB, to get access to five years of case level data and let them analyze it so we could see where things were dropping out. And we wanted them all in the same room so that they couldn't no longer just point to that um, vague other as being the problem for why things weren't getting done. Because I know in my experience, met with the police and prosecutors and them all the time, and they always point to each other as the problem. Right? No, you don't understand. It's them. And then you get to them and they're like, no, you don't understand. It's over there. They're not bringing us good cases. And there's the cops saying, well, we bring out to the prosecutors, but they just don't charge. Well, you would, you know, and... Um, I think if we could all get them uh, in the same room, maybe all on videotape, all at the same time, so we could understand what they're doing, we'd all be better off because it's a little too iffy and washy for me, for my personal taste, for anyways. Okay, so I'm going to open this up to both of you too. So we're a 
12 weeks, something into our COVID-19 uh, new world order that we've been in in the United States. And you're in Chicago and I'm in DC and we both had very similar experiences. We're both uh, about to open up. But what has this shelter in place done to survivors? Survivors that were trying to recover from their assaults. I, I think there's maybe two different sets of survivors are talking about one that was recovering from assault that had already happened and secondly um survivors that may have been may have been um assaulted within the lockdown and then where and how do they get resources and help and where do they go if they have to stay you know at home with their abusers so if one of you could talk about that i'd really appreciate it I think the the, the long term um, answer to that is is you know it's it's unfolding. It will continue to unfold. Um, but what we do know now is that uh, the survivors that we excuse me statistically we know that people are still continuing to be sexually assaulted, particularly right now um, domestic violence. Um, numbers are, are escalating dramatically and sexual violence is incorporated in those numbers. Um, but for multiple reasons, people are not um, feeling safe enough um, to, to, to go to, to hospitals or to go to even police stations. So um, as an agency directly, our numbers in the month of, of April dropped about 50% and since then have dropped even further. So we're seeing about right now about 30 to 33% of the typical numbers that we see with, with just the 17 hospitals that we partner with. Um, we by no means believe that sexual violence has dropped off that significantly. I mean, that would be a good thing actually, but um, we, we don't believe that. We just believe instead that people are choosing to not report um, for fear of, you know, and staying in guidelines with shelter in place, also feeling as though they might not have a lot of opportunity. Um, they may be fearing entering an ER for their own safety reasons um, around COVID-19. So um, we anticipate, unfortunately, learning more over time as, as the shelter in place is lifted um, in regards to who's been harmed and, and who needs our assistance. Um, for those of us who, for, for the clients that continue, that we had prior to COVID, um, well over 90% of those clients are continuing to seek our services uh, through therapeutic um, means. Um, at some point, we did see a drop off because some of our survivors just didn't have the capacity to continue their services from um, in a remote um, setting. Uh, either they are in homes where they, they lack privacy um, to have those types of interventions, or they may or may not have um, the equipment for telecommuting um, communications with us or private phones or, or the lack or the like. So, um, but despite that, the majority of those who were with us continue to seek our services um, during this time, that that trauma is obviously um, compacted by by the overall trauma that so many of us are experiencing right now as as a result of this pandemic, and so the the topic of conversation 
um, is likely changing. Obviously, those are confidential, so I wouldn't know specifically, but um, the likelihood um, of those conversations are are changing to be a little bit more global in scope, but certainly people continue to need our, our support and sponsorship. Tracy, if I can add, um, just because I want to make sure uh, to really hone in on this for the people that are watching, um, there are still resources available for survivors. Resilience may not be operating in the way that we typically have pre the pandemic, but we are still here. We are still available. Um, we understand that that the way that people engage in services might look different for a variety of reasons. And you know, Aaron also alluded to the fact that people just might not be in a good, confidential, or safe place to even access the services. But we definitely don't want people and survivors. Um, to feel that those services are also not available right now. Um, so please, um, you know, for anybody watching, if you know someone that needs assistance, get them connected to agencies like Resilience, um, you know, in whatever manner is safest for them so that we can assist them in all the ways that, you know, we have historically. What, let's get to those services. I don't think, oh, maybe, maybe they do, maybe they don't. I've been around um, and engaged with the, the Violence Against Women community for many years now, and, they, and I don't know specifically, what are those services? So um, I'm gonna take a hypothetical, and I don't know if this is the average, but I'm gonna say um, a, a survivor walks into a hospital to report an assault. One, what can she expect from that process? And two, where does resilience fit into this? And what services so he, are you all providing? He or she, um, or they or them, could expect uh, all hospitals in the state of Illinois um, are required to partner with a rape crisis center. Um, so whether, you know, depending on the area and the availability of those services, a survivor should anticipate having an advocate actually in the emergency room with them or to be receiving resources um, about advocacy services. Currently, um, because of the pandemic, many rape crisis centers have suspended that in-person advocacy, but are still offering it over the phone to survivors that are in the emergency room to make sure that they're making those connections. Um, that advocate has the ability to answer any questions that a survivor may have about the process in the emergency room. Um, the unfortunate reality is that we're not in a place as a state where every survivor will have the benefit of receiving treatment in the ER by a qualified medical professional or a sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, and so that advocate can, can sort of help answer questions um, where appropriate that, that that information may not be available, you know, kind of in, in the expertise that's in the emergency room. Um, we're able to link them up to follow-up services, most importantly, legal advocacy. Like I said, hospitals are required to notify law enforcement when a survivor reports a sexual assault. That does not mean a survivor is required to talk to law enforcement, though, so I want to be clear about that. Many times our advocates are explaining those rights, that law enforcement's required to make a report, but you don't have to talk to them, right? They can give the report to the nurse, You'll have the report number when and if you want to follow up later, you have the ability to do that and an advocate can help to navigate that process. We're going to be talking about safety 
with that survivor. So what does safety look like for them um, upon leaving the emergency room and after? Is this someone they anticipate coming into contact with again? Depending on if there was a prior relationship, we might be safety planning with them in the form of, you know, just you know, safety planning as it relates to things they can do in their personal life um, to feel um, or, or, or be safer. In addition to, um, you know, legal remedy that might be available to them, like in the form of a protective order, for example. Um, our advocates are also available to help provide legal options and support around the different areas of survivors' identities that might be impacted, their identity as an employee, as an immigrant, um, as a student. So there's remedies to the impact that sexual assault may have on students, employees, immigrants, you know, the list goes on and on that an advocate also makes sure that that survivor has access to. We also offer trauma therapy services. So they'll be linked up to, you know, a counselor that can provide individual services. We do group therapy. Resilience has art therapy now. We do dance movement therapy. So they can find hopefully a therapeutic method um, that can begin their, their path to healing in a way that makes sense for them. These services are free. These services are confidential for survivors. Um, right now, again, many of these services are being offered remotely and virtual, virtually, but they're still available. One of the recent updates that we made to our services um, has been the ability to provide uh, trauma therapy services virtually um, to be able to meet with clients in a virtual space. Additionally, because as Erin alluded to, we've seen such, such substantial drops in survivors accessing emergency rooms um, as sort of that main kind of access point to our services and to reporting. Um, we also have options for survivors to go and get medical treatment outside of the emergency room. So we have a COVID-19 resource page on our website, um, which outlines and gives resources available to survivors that need that medical care, don't want to go to NER. They can get in touch with one of our advocates to figure out what, a safer, what might feel like a safer place for them to go to to get that care. Okay, so that's going to lead me to my next question, which is, I think in the past week, the Illinois General Assembly uh, passed something related to evidence collection, and I believe alternative sites related to um, getting allowing survivors to go somewhere other than an emergency room. So can either one of you talk about that, and also, well, one about that passing, but also what are what would be a alternative site? What does that actually mean? So the what the amendment that just passed, so historically it's been very, very intentional that evidence collection and treatment related to a sexual assault is able to occur in an emergency room. Um, ISP, you know, Illinois State Police provides evidence collection kits specifically to emergency rooms. The Sexual Assault Survivors Emergency Treatment Act, which is the law that was just amended to include off-site locations is specific to emergency rooms. And so from a quality standpoint and a compliance standpoint, all of that has been centralized in the state of Illinois to occur in emergency rooms. Because we were seeing such a drastic decrease in the amount of survivors that were going to ERs, we wanted to make sure that 
if the reason was because survivors weren't feeling safe because national, nas national rhetoric has focused on people staying home, avoiding emergency rooms, um, you know, possibly being exposed in emergency rooms, right? If that is leading to people feeling like even in, even in a circumstance of emergency, I'm not going to go to a hospital, right? We wanted to make sure that there was outside resources available where people could still get the same level of care. The issue was from a legislative standpoint, emergency rooms were the only people sort of authorized, the only places authorized to conduct evidence collection. So a survivor could go to the clinic, but if they wanted you know, to pursue their case in the criminal justice system and have the evidence hopefully to support a prosecution, that wasn't available in a clinic to them. And so the way that CECITA was amended was to include federally qualified health centers um, that have some um, that are either primary care or providing sexual health services can apply, um, you know, can basically submit a sexual assault treatment protocol to the Illinois Department of Public Health for approval that demonstrates that they are gonna meet all the mandates of the Sexual Assault Survivors Emergency Treatment Act and become a treatment location. Um, the law is temporary. Like I said, there is a longstanding history and commitment to make sure this is centralized in emergency rooms. But where, what was policy stances pre-COVID might look a little bit different post-COVID. Yep. Um, and we, you know, we really pushed to make sure that those outside resources were available to survivors. Um, so far, uh, we only know of one health center um, in the city of Chicago that we anticipate um, you know, submitting a protocol to be approved. That's Howard Brown Health Center. Um, they were, you know, champions of the legislation and really wanted this available um, to survivors. Um, they had seen an increase in the survivors accessing care at their health center um, since the time that we were seeing a decrease. Um, we have been in some talks with the mayor's office to try to see if there could be locations set up via the Chicago Department of Public Health. That's still very much in the beginning kind of conversations, but we're hoping that there'll be some dispersed throughout the city that can, you know, feel a bit safer to survivors and make sure that comprehensive, um, you know, medical forensic exams are able to be provided outside of that emergency room setting currently during this pandemic. I will tell you, I uh, I understand the um, the feeling of not wanting to go into um, a, a hospital at the moment. I, I can understand that. My dad early on, um, shortly after the lockdown in Chicago, he lives in the suburb there. He has he has to go back for regular treatment for an issue, and he he called my sister and said, "Oh yeah, they called me. They've rescheduled it because they've had some people cancel. So I moved from 3 p.m. till noon." My sister's like, what are you talking about? Oh, I, I got to go get my treatment. And she's like, you're not going into a hospital. I have to drive you. I'm not going. This is, you know, March, probably around my birthday, around March 25th. And she's like, you're not going in. My dad's 85. And she's like, I'm not going in. You're not going in. Call them and see how, if you must go in. And if you can just delay this a few weeks to see what happens. Like who is going into a hospital? So I understand it. I don't want people to not see treatment that need it, but I can understand how people would be anxious about it. Okay, in a perfect world, 
could one of you describe what is the per ideal response from police when a survivor calls 911 and that officer, he or she shows up at he or she's house or wherever? What is that ideal response? Because I've heard for years of um, advocates discussing negative responses from the police department. We talked about a little earlier, you talked about just the case disappearing in the system. But on that first contact, what is that ideal response? Besides just believing them, what else is there in that ideal response? Well, I'll, st I'll start off and then um, Sarah can add where needed. Um, but your first point is, is really where it has to start off, where um, police officers should be um, neutral at, at you know minimally to to learning more about the situation i think oftentimes survivors are re-victimized um, there's a lot of victim blaming that happens in the interview process that um you know that impacts the way the survivor feels impacts their level of safety um, in that moment and so i think that uh, police officers um, need to be a little bit more trauma-informed to ensure that their connection and relatability to, to the survivor is one that's going to benefit both, both sides. Um, so it's important that the line of questioning does not indicate to, to the survivor that they've done something wrong um, to, or, they, or they've done something that caused this incident to happen to them. Um, so police officers, it's important that they are patient and understanding that information that might be communicated to them um, could potentially be communicated um, chronologically out of order um, or that details could be left out because of the, the moment of trauma that, that the person is experiencing. So I think it, you know, to, to kind of, you know, sway away from or deter away from, you know, consistent badgering um, of, of survivors or asking them, why were you there? What were you doing? What were you drinking? Some of those, some of those questions might, might be relevant, but it's, it's really important that they um, identify that or realize that the way they form certain questions are are more triggering to the survivor and can hamper um, their ability to to respond and their and their willingness to to participate in the interview. So um, a lot of patience, a lot of perspective about being trauma um, aware and informed is really important. And our team, um, led by uh, Denitra and her staff, oh, excuse me, Denitra, a name just popped up on my on my screen about Sarah and her staff. Um, they're doing a wonderful job in, in developing trainings for CPD um, to ensure that they are that they're more informed about the nature and um, the needs of, of survivors. I'll just add um, that I think that there is a viewpoint that the appropriate response is any case that's reported gets an arrest, every arrest gets, you know, is prosecuted, that that sort of, that's how we address sexual assault, right? Is by focusing on the criminal justice system, making sure that every arrest ends up in prosecution and conviction. Um, I think that there can be justice along the way, even if the outcome 
you know, may not be a conviction. And that's not to scapegoat that, you know, arrest rates are low and that we need to increase those things because I, we, we do, um, you know, where people, where survivors want accountability. But I think for me, in addition to the things that Aaron are saying, it's making sure that the process itself is fair, is equitable, um, you know, that the, you know, innocent, you know, girl walking down the street who's sexually assaulted by a stranger and the sex worker that is sexually assaulted get treated the same by the criminal justice system. Those cases are prioritized the same. So I definitely think equity is a huge part of what I envision to be the criminal justice response when survivors choose to engage the criminal justice system. Additionally, making sure that throughout the process, survivors are informed. So they understand where their case is at, even if there's nothing to be done. I think the natural inclination is you just like avoid, <laughs> avoid it maybe if there's not, you know, a next step. But survivors deserve to be informed. They deserve to be told where the case is at. They deserve to be informed of where some of the concerns may be, um, you know, with regard to advancing it to the next step. Additionally, I just want to add too, and I know we're talking specifically about the criminal justice system. However, um, sexual assault is a societal issue. It doesn't just, the solution to it doesn't just resolve in the criminal justice system. That's one, one part of it for the survivors. 25% um, of which we estimate access that system. If we're looking at that three out of four sexual assaults don't even make it to the criminal justice system, communities and advocates need to be equally as focused on community responses, community education, prevention education, you know, um, addressing rape culture head on um, in order to truly combat sexual violence. I think sometimes there's an over there's a concentrated focus on our criminal justice needing to resolve sexual assault in its totality by arresting and prosecuting every sexual assault that comes to them which which they need to prioritize and they should prioritize the sexual assaults that make it to them which we're only talking about on average 25 percent of sexual assaults that are even going into that system we have a lot of work to make the criminal justice system and any system feel equal to the different people that may be accessing it, to, to feel like they're gonna get an equitable response compared to those that elect to typically report to those systems. You know, it's interesting. I remember years ago when I lived in Roscoe Village, there was a um, supposedly serial rapist, right? One of the rare a stranger assaults, and it was going on in Lakeview and Bucktown and Roscoe Village, Bucktown Wicker Park area. And the city's response, the CPD's response was to send on a Friday night, I think, 200 extra cops into Bucktown and Wicker Park. And they basically sat around in the street corners talking. And the ones that were doing any work, if you could call it, were writing tickets. So what Bucktown and Wicker Park got was just a lot more tickets. And after the 10 o'clock news was over and they did all their live shots, seeing all these cops all over the North, North Rich, North side communities, the media left and right behind them left the police. And a, a woman was assaulted a couple blocks down from the Beachwood report, Beachwood uh, bar. And 
uh, they heard the scream and some people ran out and chased the guy off. Don't know if it was the same guy, but there was an assault that night. And when they did the presser the next day, the lieutenant or whoever was in charge and did the press conference said, he doesn't understand why women are out at one in the morning by themselves. And it was like, wow. And then, you know, you're talking 2010, right? It was like stunning that that could possibly be the answer. Um, Because I have a, a lot of issues and I want to talk about media coverage as one of our last things. What impact do you think media coverage has on the ability of survivors to um, repair themselves, get help, get as healthy as they can, and the continuation of this rape culture that we have in the United States? Either one can jump in. Yeah. Well, I'll start by saying that um, that media attention on, on any subject matter um, is essentially um, where most of us get our education, quite frankly. Um, and so it's really important that our media is responsible and accurate and, um, and mindful of the data that they, that they put out. Um, that would go a really long way in, in helping survivors feel more um, believed, supported, um, access to resources. Um, our media has a strong impact on uh, the stigmas that are associated with, with this crime and all other, you know, and, and others. Um, I think that they have a responsibility to, to realize that they are our social, you know, there are our social resources. And for, for so many, um, the main source of information, period. Most people are not going beyond our media resources for their information. And so, um, you know, positive and negative, they, they have true power and, and impact on how people believe, what they believe, and, and how they respond and, and on, into certain is, on certain issues. Um, during the Me Too movement, I believe we're still in that movement um, that the media played a core um, role in educating people, but more of that needs to happen. Um, and they have a platform that no, you know, quite frankly, that, that is unmatched. And so there is a responsibility to ensure that uh, survivors know that we believe them, know that um, there are resources out there to support them. Um, the more that that's communicated, the more people will respond by, um, you know, coming forward publicly or not, but coming forward to, to address their own healing. Um, our culture would be impacted to kind of, better understand that, um, you know, where consent starts and, and, and ends and the importance of everybody feeling, um, you know, responsible and accountable for, for their actions. So that was a long way of, of, of answering your question, but uh, the social media is, is our biggest platform and, and they have a, and, and those who, um, who lead that have, have a very um, clear responsibility to, to support our community. I'll just also add that I think in addition to what media covers, so the type of sexual assault you typically see covered in the media, 
it extends to just the the images and the things that we are constantly seeing as a society represented in media. So how female bodies are represented, how male identified bodies are represented, what is being equated to being masculine, masculine versus feminine, like, you know, where gender roles come into play. And we're inundated with this stuff from an incredibly young age. So why we're talking particularly about media, which also feeds into that, you know, there's this kind of broader, um, this broader education that's happening around gender norms that influences and impacts sexual violence. Um, you know, so I, I think that, you know, media certainly has a responsibility to make sure that the way that they cover sexual assault, again, is equitable, right? It's mm -hmm. not just stranger assaulting somebody walking down the street, okay? That's not, you know, the only place where sexual assault happens, and that's not the only sexual assault we should care about as a society, right? Um, but people also, you know, I think, need to personally reflect on the way that they may be indirectly contributing to systems that allow sexual assault to happen, right? Um, or that, you know, allows perpetrators to remain in the shadows. We, when we looked at, when we published in 2013, our study, it was like a study of one year of media coverage in the Tribune sometimes. Here are some numbers. Of the 205 stories they did on sexual assault or sexual violence rape, 197, 197 were stranger assaults. Right, it's like 95, 97% of them, right? Um, when we looked at those 197, 38 were on a single story of a girl um, from Highland Park who happened to be white, who got assaulted at the Chicago theater by, she could not get into, the reports vary, but it seems like she couldn't get into the 18 and over show because she forgot her ID. So her friends went into the show and she waited basically on the street for two or three hours. And in that time she was assaulted by um, some number of young black males. That story of the 197 stories that were on stranger rapes, 38 stories among the two papers in Chicago, two major papers. And we know that that 90, you know, that 90 something percent that rep represents is the exact opposite of what is actually occurring. Yes. 75 to 80 percent of the time, it is somebody known to the survivor, right? It's not a stranger. Right. Not to right. mention the narratives that media is influencing around black men being the only people that perpetrate sexual violence. Right. We're seeing and how that plays out and the violence, you know, state violence within those communities. Like, right, this well, is all. We just saw it on the call in, in Central Park. She knew exactly who to call and what to say and everyone mm -hmm. would buy it immediately, which is horrible because then people are going to disbelieve the next woman who calls for whoever is assaulting her in the same area. It's, so it's all bad. Yeah, we, um, around the police station closings, when the CPD back in like 2015 was closing three police stations, there was a meeting um, to save the station and Alderman Wagas Pack was there and he got surrounded by, at the end of the meeting, got surrounded by three um, 
professional women who were all worked odd hours because they worked, um, I think they were, um, one's a friend of mine, but now, um, they worked in a hospital. I think they're therapists and nurses, so they worked odd shifts. And they were like, if you take the station away and you take police out, we, we get home in all these odd hours. How are we going to be safe? And I understand why they had that belief, but at the same time, that's reinforced, that belief was put into them to some degree by the fact that the media only covers guys jumping out of the bushes or breaking down your door and not the fact. And I, I told them, you have to, funny stories, I told them to, because he asked me to come in and talk to him. I said, you have much more to worry about the guy you meet in the Wicker Park bar feeding you too many drinks than you do um, a guy jumping out of the bush. It's not like it never happens, but yeah. if you're looking to protect yourself from the statistically, the high statistical chance, it's the guy in the bar. Two weeks later, that was the girlfriend of one of my wife's friends um, from grad school. So when I went to the, we went out to a bar and we met him and her partner, my wife's friend walks up and says, so you're telling me I'm the one that's gonna rape my girlfriend. I'm like, well, statistically, yes. <laughs> Oh, in Wicker Park bars. How huh? I'm like, why? Where did you guys meet? Map room in Wicker Park. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, but yes, that's, but you know, we have a media that's projecting a story that unfortunately has women who are taking precautions to protect themselves, often protecting themselves against the least likeliest um, kind of assault. And that's, um, I hope we find. In our upcoming report over the summer, I hope we find data um, that says that's changed. I'm fearful. Uh, we've added the TV stations to the report, so I'm really scared about what we're going to find because I think TV has a harder time because of the time limits, and also I think they do just the worst job of it. Um, when we released our report in 2013, excuse me, the Chicago media members flamed me on social media. They said the, story, the report was completely... Um, invalid. You can't look at their spot coverage. Crime happens, they co-cover it because there's no um, news judgment going on. And I'm like, no, there is. There is. You don't get 197 of 205 stories between two major papers being exactly the wrong type of assault you're covering without some decisions being made. That's right. right? And we looked, we looked at that as best we could. The majority of the offenders were black black and brown. It was not hard. And we also got asked, and I want you to comment about this in the waning couple of minutes we have left. They argued with me that how, how can we cover this? We need to use the victim's names. We need to identify them. You know, who, what, where, when. That's, the, that's how you report. And I argued back, it's like, no, you don't. What is someone's name? No matter whose name it is in Chicago, unless you're a highfalutin politician, I've been on every television station in Chicago at least a few times, on BAD five times, Chicago Tonight a couple of times. I've been on CNN, MSNBC, the Auckland Times in New Zealand. If something happened to me, maybe 100 people would care. Not that I'm trying to dismean it, but I think we put too much stock in the fact that we have to identify and get the actual name of people to talk about what's actually just happened. Like I argued with them at DePaul. I'm like, if something happened at DePaul, you don't need that survivor's name to say that there was a sexual assault at DePaul. You can give her age, right? And describe the attack and then go into what the response is from the university. That's a perfectly good news story 
that doesn't bring any attention to the survivor. They thought I was completely nuts. So I just, if you, we only have a minute or two left. If you want to comment on that, feel free. I think the name probably sensationalizes the story in some way or makes it more real to people. But um, we do need, it's, it's, it's the responsibility as we were just talking about with, with our media to really help the audience understand the importance of confidentiality um, when it comes to, to this crime and, and other crimes, that um, the survivor has a right to be, you know, to be private. Um, this is a, an extremely traumatic experience and we don't know, you know, all the parameters that involve um, you know, that's, that involves uh, surround someone's life and, and, and privacy. And we need to understand um, the importance of protecting that and helping them protect that um, when and where they, they desire that privacy. Um, it in no way devalues or um, detracts from the importance of the issue. And it, I think social media or all media in, in, in general has a responsibility to help deliver that message to the audience. I think too, the identity of the survivor becomes important because media is basically telling society, right? Or the community, this is a sexual assault you should care about yeah. and you should believe, or this is a sexual assault that something's a little fishy in it and maybe something else happened here that we're not totally seeing. So I, I think that there is a desire to put the identity in the survive, of the survivor into the, the, the narrative around it to help people figure out whether or not this is a real sexual assault, if this is something that we should really be concerned about. Um, so just wanted to add that to it as well. I agree, I agree 100%. I think a lot of that is signaling. I think a lot of that is code for how you're, you're supposed to give credibility to both the victim and the survivor, which is why when, I'm just off topic a little bit, but when you see a young man of color, unfortunately, killed by white people, you'll always see um, anything they can dig up to discredit right. um, the victim, rather Absolutely. than whether or not, I mean, I don't, everyone has a right to live. And unless they, unfortunately, if they're attacking someone and the only way to stop that attack is through force, then we'll have to talk about that. But everyone else who isn't doing that, my opinion, has a right to live no matter who they are, and the actions are just as bad regardless of who they are. Um, so, but I do agree it's signaling. Sarah, Aaron, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Um, so our study will be coming out this summer. For, for our audience, we'll be talking gang data collection, because it isn't a single database in Chicago. We'll be talking about this gang data collection in the upcoming weeks. And then on the 17th, we have Barry Friedman from NYU Law talking about disentangling police activities to uh, parse them out to other responders. And that would go for actually um, responding to sexual assault survivors and whether or not the police and certain types of police and certain elements of the police department are the best to investigate. So that's a fascinating article. Thank you again, ladies. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Um, and um, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Thank you again for having us.